Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast we talk about baseball 365 days a year, unless it's a leap year, and then we're going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012. It's now the 18th day of January 2017, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I am recording this sitting on the ground at the Hollywood Burbank Airport in Burbank, California, the birthplace of former Baltimore Oriole and California Angels third baseman Doug DeSensei. You know, I am still, I, I find it strange the Hollywood Burbank Airport. It's in Burbank. It's not in Hollywood. In fact, there's a couple of towns, or neighborhoods in between here and Hollywood. But I, you know, I don't know. I, I did a whole thing complaining about that before. Uh, it's just the Burbank Airport. Say we're flying into Burbank. How hard is that to do? Now, the strange thing about the, this airport is that, you know, if you've been following this podcast, I know I have, there have been, yeah, I've talked about how they, they, they play the music here. You probably hear it going on in the background. And they always played music from, like, the, the, the early to mid-'80s. Yeah, it was like all the music that I listened to in junior high school and maybe my freshman year in high school would play here. It was like, you know, you'd come here and I was at the school dance in Weston, Massachusetts. And now, since they've rebranded the airport, um, you know, it's like they do nothing but play 70s music. I guess a few 80s songs have come in here, but most of it's been from the 70s. And, you know, I find that a little disconcerting. You know, I come here, I sit here on the floor, got my computer plugged in, got my phone here, said, you know, it's terrible sound quality here because we got music playing, we got announcements. Why not do a podcast? But, like, you know, where's the Duran Duran? Where's the Huey Lewis? Where's the damn Pointer Sisters? Ray, did you notice I just said damn? I hope that's okay. You know, I, I talked about... Dr. King on Dr. King's day, but there was another really important thing that happened in baseball specifically on the uh, 16th day of January, and that was on the 16th day of January 1970, and I think in some ways people don't quite understand the significance of what happened with this lawsuit, the lawsuit of Flood versus Kuhn. Now, if you don't know who Kurt Flood is, um, you know, Kurt Flood was a damn good player who played for the St. Louis Cardinals during their glory years of the 1960s. And he was, he actually, something I didn't know until I was doing a little bit of research for this article, or for this podcast, is that he actually began his career as a uh, member of the Cincinnati Red legs, not the Reds, but the Red legs, um, and he was, I he was uh, one of the best center fielders, you know, in baseball, and he was from he's a, a native of Texas, but he was a, he grew up in Oakland, and he uh, was a teammate with um, uh, Veda Pinson and uh, Frank Robinson. Think about that high school outfield. Kurt Flood, Veda Pinson, Frank Robinson. Frank Robinson is a Hall of Famer. Veda Pinson was borderline. And Kurt Flood was borderline. There's the announcement. Now, 
For the, you don't know who Kurt Flood was in terms of who he was as a player. He was a good, solid offensive producer. You know, hit for a high average, especially during a big pitcher's era. I mean, think of, he played in the National League and an era where he had to face regularly, you know, Warren Spahn. He had to face. Juan Marichal had to face Sandy Koufax, had to face Gaylord Perry, had to face Don Drysdale, all these great, great pitchers, Jim Bunning, all these pitchers who pitched then. I was going to say Bob Gibson, but Bob Gibson was his teammate. And he really exploded onto the scene in 1958, had a good season as a rookie, but then developed into a good, solid hitter, led the league in hits in 1964. And stole, you know, stole a decent amount of bases, had okay power, but was a good hitter, but was a spectacular defender, and was considered to be one of the best defensive center fielders in baseball, and was a big play when he led the league in hits with 211 hits in 1964. He was part of the Cardinal team that overtook the Phillies. And wound up winning the pennant, wound up beating the Yankees in seven games, was part of the, the Cardinal team that beat the Red Sox in the 1967 World Series, was part of the Cardinal team that won the 1968 pennant. It was a, you know, I don't want to call it a mishap because he tripped, he kind of slipped a little on a wet field as the game winning triple went over his head. But, you know, played in three World Series, won two of them, and while didn't exactly light up the world, offensively was a a transformative figure defensively and played on spectacular teams and played on teams that were some of the best in in the National League of that uh, of that era and played for a great organization San Luis Cardinals were considered to be one of the top organizations in the game now he was outspoken and of course this was Think about the era that he's playing. You know, it's one, in the one hand, you can think about, hey, they're playing Talking Heads, my favorite band. You know, on the one hand, you think about sports taking place in a vacuum. You know, I just listed casually 67, 68, where he had some of his best years. And yet, those were years of great turmoil, of great controversy. Hell, as we just finished celebrating the legacy of Dr. King, he was killed in 1968. That was considered to be one of the just the the worst years in terms of you know the violence, the death of Robert Kennedy, the death of of Dr. King, the Vietnam War protests, the you know racial uprising, all these horrible things were going on. These these this intense uh, tra- traumatic moments whose the reverberations are still being felt. These were not moments that happened in a vacuum. These are moments that absolutely were felt throughout America and were felt in our sports. And Flood was someone who was, you know, not not subtle in some of his. He was he was he was an outspoken person, and he also was someone who saw that he was playing for an organization that was, well, relatively, you know, it was relatively progressive. 
you know, the Cardinals had a good reputation in terms of being, if you were an African-American player in the 60s, I'm sure it would be unbearable now. But at the time, it was considered to be a, a better place to play. Now, he was a con- still considered one of the best center fielders in baseball when he was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. And he was traded to the Phillies, and he didn't want to go. He had been playing, how many? He had been playing like 11, 12 years with the um, St. Louis Cardinals, something like that. Yeah, 12 seasons with the Cardinals, and he didn't want to go. Now, at the time, there was something called the Reserve Clause. And the Reserve Clause was part of every contract that you signed as a major league player. And basically gave the team the right to renew your contract in perpetuity. In other words, you didn't have a right to play for whomever you wanted. The only way you could get out of that contract or play for a different team is if you were traded or if they released you. Now, you could hold out for more money. You could not show up. That was your one recourse is, I'm not going to show up to work. And they could, you could request trades, but there was no obligation to deal you. But if they wanted to trade you against your will, you had no recourse either. And Kurt Flood had the guts to say, no, that's no, I'm, I'm not doing it. You can't just trade me without my permission. You can't just say you're playing here now, you're playing here now. And he filed suit against the commissioner of baseball and challenged the reserve clause, challenged the legality of it. Now, lawyers for the commissioner of baseball and for baseball together were saying for years, never, ever let the reserve clause find its way into a courtroom. Never let this be analyzed by lawyers. Because ball players were dumb jocks who just wanted to play the game. And if there was ever any challenge to it, they could either just throw some more money at them. Here, here, here's a raise, cool it. Or they can, what are you going to do? Go pound sand, go back to the, go back to the, uh, the, the coal mine. You've got a chance to play baseball, something that most people would say, oh, I'd cut my arm off to do that. And would you tell people that? When you say, I'd do this for nothing, I'd just work for nothing, I'm doing it for the love of it, they'll take advantage of it. This was a wonderful way to keep salaries down, to make sure players had no recourse, to make sure that there was nothing they could do. Nothing they can do if they wanted to be to, to go to a different team, if they wanted to make more money. And you saw that there were players who wanted to increase their value. Hell, you saw just a few years before this happened, before the 1966 season, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale sat out the beginning of the year together saying, you're not going to win piddly-poo without us. We're the defending world champion LA Dodgers. We're winning on the backs of Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale. What if we just sit out and we want more money? We do, we, and it's not just out of greed. It's we should be paid more. You're making piles of money on us. And we should be paid accordingly. They had no choice if they wanted to be paid their market value, to ask it from the Dodgers. If they had a chance to go on the open market, I'm going to go on a limb and say someone would have signed them. But that wasn't an option. 
That wasn't an option. Free agency was not an option. You had no recourse for that. Kurt Flug filed the suit, and he did not win. As it went through the, you know, the 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 baseball establishment fought against them. The legal the legal world fought against them, and in the end, um, he was basically shut out of baseball. He made a quick cameo with the Washington Senators several years later, but he was pushed out because the challenge was not as strong. But the groundwork was there. The, he laid down the groundwork and essentially sacrificed his career for it. Now, I, I warned you all, my listeners, from be wary of when people talk about the good old days and when they talk about how things used to be better. You hear a lot of talk about how players are greedy now, they don't have the loyalty and everything like that. It's a bunch of crap. It's an absolute bunch of crap to say that there was players today are not loyal and they used to be loyal. The players didn't used to be greedy. Players have always wanted to be paid their worth. If you go back to the, the, the Players League of the 1880s, you go back to Babe Ruth holding out for money, you go back to uh, Joe DiMaggio holding out for money, all the players wanted to hold out for money. When a player stayed with a team for 15, 20 years, do you think that was out of loyalty? They had no choice. There was no recourse for having you know, for, for wanting to go somewhere else. If you were tired of your situation in the team, what were you going to do? If you, were, if you felt you were in a bad situation, you were blocked by another player, you know you were worth more, you know that someone else would pay you more, but you couldn't go anywhere unless they traded you or they cut you. You had no recourse. How is that loyalty? If you were at a job and they wouldn't let you, you know, if you're miserable at your job, or you feel like you went, I'm not being paid what I'm worth, and this other company would pay me what I'm worth. You wouldn't think twice to leave that company and go to the company that would pay you your worth. If you're paying, being paid like I'm being paid $20,000 a year, and the company over there would pay me $100,000 a year to do the same job, would you feel any loyalty there? Of course you wouldn't. Would you be able to negotiate with them? Absolutely you would. But baseball players couldn't. And the notion that this was the beginning of disloyalty in baseball is, is mind-boggling garbage. But also the notion that this, I mean, this is a, you've, you've always heard owners say this from the beginning, is that this would mean the big market teams would dominate and buy all the players and everything like that. Have you noticed the opposite has happened? No, no, no. Move away from the propaganda for a second. Move away from what the narrative you were told. Was there ever more of a period of big market teams dominating than all the years before free agency? Think about the years when the Yankees would win almost every pennant for a decade. And that great teams were picked apart because they couldn't afford to keep them. Think about all the times the Philadelphia A's had to tear down their, their squad. 
or how many times the Kansas City A's sold their players back to the Yankees, or how many times it seems like the, you know, the Pirates and the Phillies and the Braves would go decades without sometimes even contending because they couldn't put a quality product on the field because the big market teams would just sign any player they want. There was no draft then. There was no free agency then. They could just keep all the best players. And the Yankees would hoard players. Keep players in the minor leagues just in case, other cases an injury, one will be put in there. And you take a look when free agency started exploding. You have the 80s. The, the greatest decade of parity ever was the 80s, which is the decade that they kept saying over and over, all oh, big market teams are going to dominate, big market teams are going to dominate. No team repeated as world champion. The only time we've had repeat champions is since the era of free agency were the Bronx Zoo Yankees of 77-78, uh, the Cedarcaston Blue Jays, and the Joe Torre Yankees. And the Joe Torre Yankees were kind of an anomaly. They were kind of a freak of nature of what happened. Most of the time, you see an incredibly diverse group of teams that are making the postseason. Yes, they've expanded the postseason. They've expanded the postseason. You know, so obviously you're going to have more teams in the postseason. But take a look at who has the best record in baseball. It's very rarely the same team year in and year out. It's very rarely one team has the best record for four or five years in a row. And you can now rebuild faster than you used to. It would take decades in the past, decades, for teams to rebuild in the pre-free agency era. Now they can rebuild faster. And sometimes it is letting players go. Sometimes it is picking up the draft pick or whatever. But the system works. And do you know what? We've got to find real loyalty. True loyalty. Tony Gwynn showed loyalty. Cal Ripken showed loyalty. Joe Maurer showed loyalty. These are the players, and I, I've talked about this before, but I don't think people realize the significance of what Kurt Flood did. It changed sports, it changed baseball, and it, eventually it changed the competition for the better. So I salute Kurt Flood, who basically gave up his career for this fight. A fight that he was right for. A fight of which players are always branded as the bad guys. Because, well, I'd do anything to play baseball. Yes, be careful of when you say that to people. Be careful when you say that you know, you'd do it for free or anything like that. Because people will take you up on it. So, it was a grand moment that happened. Of real guts in the case of Kurt Flood that changed the face of baseball forever. And you may say it's for the worse, but do you know what? You'd have a hard time backing up that argument. And I'm going to have a hard time sitting here recording this looking like a lunatic. So, anyway, I didn't want to have that day go past and not give Kurt Flood his due, the late Kurt Flood. He passed away about. 20 years ago. So, with that in mind, 
honoring a little bit of what Kurt Flood had to do, I'll say, go to sullybaseball.com, like me on Facebook, so I have an iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Sitting, listening to 70s tunes, which was the era of which Kurt Flood played his final game. This has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast for the 18th day of January 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.